Today in the Tanakh Talks podcast, we're going to be asking two questions. The first, why do the stories in Yosef's life repeat themselves? And secondly, why do the stories in Yosef's life repeat themselves? The secret behind the repeating stories in today's Tanakh Talks podcast. Welcome to the Tanakh Talks Podcast. It's Friday. I'm broadcasting from Alone's Food in the hills overlooking Yerushalayim. You can't see anything because it is pouring outside. Thank God the Canera rose 1.5 centimeters. Lots of rain all over the country. It's a wonderful rainy winter day. And today we'll be looking at a very interesting detail in the Yosef story. And that is the question of stories that repeat themselves. Joseph dreams and he dreams. And then he goes and he hears a set of dreams from two people, and then Paro gives him a set of two dreams. And he finds himself in the pit of war, and he finds himself in a pit of war, and he gets, loses clothing, and he loses clothing. And why do all these stories keep repeating themselves, and why do all these stories keep repeating themselves? I'll stop doing that, I promise. And the reality is there's a lot of repetition, of course, between the Yosef story as it begins and it unfolds. And we talked about part of it last week, why the story of Yehuda and Tamar has literary echoes and callbacks to the story of Yosef because Yehuda has to undergo a certain process to make him understand what he did wrong. And Yehuda himself will call back to Yaakov's earlier life when he talks to Yaakov in this week's Parsha, as we talked about last week. The truth, however, is that repetition is a very common feature from the story of Abraham onward. If you look carefully, Abraham actually goes through two Lech Lecha stories. He has to separate himself to come to Eretz to separate him from his family, and then to come to, again at the end, Lech Lecha, and he has to separate himself from family again, this time in a more intense personal manner. He has his wife taken from him twice. There are all sorts of, there's a famine twice in his lifetime. And there's all sorts of repetition. It almost reminds me of one of my favorite books growing up, I remember there was this book written by Mordechai Richel, I think his name was from Montreal, and the book was called Jacob Tutu and the Hooded Fang. And the story just kept repeating itself again and again. If you, and this kid would keep repeating himself because if you didn't understand him the first time, he'd tell it to you again. That way he made sure you were listening because nobody was paying attention. Is the Torah doing the same thing? The truth is that almost all of the characters in Sefer Breshid have stories that repeat themselves. Yaakov, of course is going to find that the stories not only repeat themselves, but they reverse themselves. Whereas he used to be the person doing the fooling, the deceiver, he's able to fool Yitzchak at night and substitute the younger for the older, which is what he does. He is fooled at night, and Lavan tells him, here we don't substitute younger for older, here the older goes before younger. A clear callback to what he had done to Yitzchak, his father. The only character who really doesn't do any repeating is Yitzchak. And I think that's because of the very unique nature of Yitzchak's role. First of all, Yitzchak is not really meant to do much that is new, but he's meant to repeat what his father does. He goes back to the wells that his father digs and rebuilds them. Yitzchak is the person who establishes the foundations of Abraham's revolution. So Abraham's great innovations are not a spiritual flash in the pan, but he keeps repeating the message. The other possibility, of course, is Yitzchak is the only one who seems to get everything done right the first time. Look at the wife-sister stories. In both cases, Sarah is taken from Abraham. Rivka is never taken from Yitzchak. Yitzchak never leaves the land. He never has to leave the land. He gets to stay in the land. And not only that, but he, whereas the others, when Abraham leaves, the famine is still going on in the land, or even when he's in Gerar, there's still famine in the land. When Yitzchak leaves Gerar, suddenly he can plant one seed and a hundred will grow. 
he is prosperous no matter where he goes. And this is something very unique to Yitzchak, and therefore you don't see the repetitions of the stories going on and on and on. So let's now go back to the Yosef story quickly. It's a very short idea. And we see here several things repeat themselves. I went through them quickly. I want to do them again, however. But the first detail that clearly repeats itself is that he has a set of dreams, not one, but two. They're almost the same, with the addition of the second time round, the sun and the moon, which gives us a hint. And of course, Yosef interprets them the way any 17-year-old kid would interpret them, and all, I think we would all interpret them, that there'd be some sort of dominion over his brothers. That's what he thinks they mean. The brothers obviously interpret it the same way because they're ready to kill him. And Yaakov himself, when he hears, when Yosef tells him about the second dream, he doesn't tell him the first dream because Yaakov's not in it. But when he hears that the sun and the moon are going to bow down to him, then all of a sudden Yaakov's like, are you really crazy? Are your mother and I going to bow down to you? The second set of dreams that Yosef have do not come from him. It's interesting. Unlike Daniel, who starts off as an interpreter of dreams, but ultimately Daniel has his own dreams that he himself has to interpret. Yosef goes, it appears in the reverse direction. Yosef has his own dreams, and then he starts interpreting other people's. So when Yosef is in phase two of his life in the dungeon in Egypt, he hears these two sets of dreams. And as Rav Amnon Bazak has written, he actually applies quite a bit of logic to what um, you know the dreams are symbolized. When the guy, when the butler says to him, listen, I've got, I'm now offering you my dream, I'm offering wine to Paro, how does he know it's going to be in three days? Well, the party was in three days. This isn't a secret, oh, I guess that in three days Paro's suddenly going to throw a party. Rather, he knew that within three days, something big with monuments would happen, so he was able to put those details together in the dream. Similarly with the baker, the three baskets, nobody knows what the three baskets are, but Yosef already, once he's interpreted the, but, the butler's dream and understands what the meaning of the three days are, he now can understand what the baker's dream means too and what the baker's sad fate is going to be. And then, of course, there's the third set of dreams from Paro. And the question is, why does Yosef, you know, why is his interpretation chosen? Why does Paro look and say, this is the man with whom God speaks and they're so impressed by him? Ramban says, and it's interesting, Ramban is in Mem Aleph Pasigdal, chapter 41, verse 4, says, you have to understand that the interpretation of the dream that Yosef gave also included the solution. That it wasn't just that Yosef had the initiative, oh, by the way, here's my interpretation, here's my problem-solving trick, rather that Ramban holds that this is part of the dream itself. Dr. Yoni Grossman makes a very interesting point about these dreams. He says that Paro leaves one clear detail out of his dream, and in fact, he changes a detail. So what is this little detail that Paro adds and Paro changes? Well, if you look carefully at the telling of the dreams of what is actually dreaming, what Paro tells Yosef, he mentions that the skinny cows, the lean cows come out and they stand side by side with the heavy, the fat cows on the riverbank. But Paro doesn't tell that to Yosef. Another thing that happens that Paro adds or omits to be more precise, the bad-looking cows consume the good-looking cows and they wake up, but Paro adds that when the lean cows are consumed of fat cows, you couldn't even see that they could consume them. That's not in the original dream. So one can imagine that Yosef is interpreting what Paro tells him, says Dr. Grossman. And at that point in time, his interpretation is no different than anybody else, because everybody else is trying to guess what Paro meant. But then when he gives his solution, what is his solution? That you can store for the future, that the that unlike what Paro said, there will be hints of the seven fat cows within the seven lean cows, then Paro understands that Yosef understood what the original dream was and not the fake, adulterated version that he had told him and the other magicians. 
Therefore, according to this interpretation, Yosef's ability to interpret dreams is not so much a reflection of magic or some sort of divine channel, but rather using divine insight, what we would call reason and logic, and of course divine inspiration, to correctly arrive at the, the solution. I once heard from Rabbi Samet that the whole trick of what Yosef is doing, unlike the other stories, if you look in the Medrash, there's nothing that you can do to prevent the future. It's all fate. It's all destiny. And what Yosef is doing is, okay, here's what the cards say, but here are the steps you can take to prevent it, which is a new idea for the Middle East, that man's destiny is not written in stone. You can take practical steps on a practical level, and, all, and of course, Judaism's innovation on a moral level and an ethical level to prevent that from happening. Either way, we see a series of growth within the dreams of Yosef's ability to interpret them. So let's look at two other small details, and we'll try to put it all together. Yosef begins as the second-in-command to Jacob, to Yaakov. However, he arouses the enmity of the people around him. His brothers, they will strip him of his coat, which symbolizes his high position, and they said to put him into a pit, into a boar. He eventually is pulled out of the pit, he is sold to Egypt, and he works his way up to become second in command to another person called Potiphar. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. We know the story, but if you notice carefully, there's a little detail that's thrown in. Oh, and she's able to turn to all the other servants and say, look at what Potiphar, our master, is trying to do. He's brought an Hebrew to make fun of us, i.e., that the other people in Potiphar's house are resentful and bitter that this Jewish kid has made it big in the land of Egypt. Just like the brothers were resentful because that Yosef was second in command, so too the rest of the household of Potiphar is also resentful that Yosef has his position of power, and again he is thrown into a pit, and he loses his clothing again. Finally, he's pulled out a third time, and this time he's given clothing, and he's given a coat, and this time he is once again second in command. How long does it last? We'll have to talk about in upcoming weeks. But how does Yosef react to these changes? I think the answer is found in how he approaches the dreams and why these dreams keep repeating themselves, what growth he undergoes. When Yosef gets his first set of dreams, he assumes that this is what they mean, and he's not willing to lord it over everybody else. He's got no problem telling his brothers, look at how great I am, look at how great I'm going to be. Even to his father, he tells him, I'm going to, you're going to bow down to me, and Yaakov puts him in his place. Do you really think this is what's going to happen? The second time round, however, Yosef is not stripped of his power because of what he did, because what he didn't do. He doesn't betray. He's obviously behaving more morally. Yet, there's a certain sense in Yosef's words to Asia Potiphar. My master put me in charge, and I'm the one responsible for all the success in his house. You know, there's a certain sense of pride. And then finally, he mentions, yes, and I really shouldn't do this sin before God. And in Midrashic thought, they look at the extra wording before Yosef's statement, this is forbidden because God said it's not allowed. And they say that Yosef is in fact humming and hawing and he's contemplating, maybe I can get away, maybe I should do this. That it's still all Yosef, not all Yosef, there's an, God is starting to enter his picture, you know, in his worldview, but he still views himself as key to understanding what's going on. Finally, when he's brought before Potiphar, sorry, not before Potiphar, but before Paro, Tell me, I hear you're good at interpreting dreams. And Yosef should respond, Well, yeah, I've interpreted a dream or two. I'm really good at this. It's one of my specialties. He doesn't say that at all. He, in fact, just says, God is the one who speaks through me. Tell me what the dream is, and God will interpret it. I take no credit whatsoever. So Yosef being, has gone a transformation from being 100% ego 
to 100% dependent and aware of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, of, of God in his life, now he's no longer the self-confident, I can do anything child, you know, then it's all because of my strength and my abilities and to recognize that it all comes from Hashem. And that in itself is the biggest growth of all. That's the, and that's dynamic growth that we've seen. It's interesting that the beginning of Miketz raises the question, and Yosef waited two years for this to happen. Why did they wait two years? So one rabbinic tradition says, well, because he trusted in the butler. He should have trusted in God. And everybody asks, well, aren't you supposed to do hishtadlut? Aren't you supposed to take matters into your own hands, do what you can do? Jacob doesn't say, well, Esau's coming to attack me. I should just let God protect me. Rather, he prepares for war. He sends gifts. He makes plans to flee. Well, only once he does everything that he can do, then he turns to God, and that is really the proper religious response. Why is Yosef held accountable and, as it were, punished for doing so? It may be because it's a specific case with Yosef that he has to learn to rely on God. He has to learn to depend on God. And therefore, as long as he's relying on anybody else, he can't get to that recognition, to that le- lesson that he so desperately needs before the story continues. Once he recognizes that everything has happened become, comes from God, the story can proceed. Remember, he's going to meet his brothers again. And when they say to him, will you forgive us? He says, no, it didn't come from me. It didn't come from you. This was all set up by God, and therefore there's no reason for me to be angry. As long as he's involved in the story, he can't say that. He can't um, come to that realization. He can't make that declaration at all. I want to finish with a lovely thought that's been in my mind for the past couple of weeks from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of England. And he talks about the difference between other religions that teach faith, like a catechism. You must believe this, you must believe this. You know, we, of course, have our own small list. I believe in this, I believe in this. But notice that Judaism really never spent the time to actually sit and define what exactly we're meant to believe and what we're not meant to believe and what is right and what is wrong. We don't teach morality as a series of yes and no's and only recently we even started to put some of the most of the relationships between man and man into halakhic legal format nobody touched a lot you know you shouldn't gossip but nobody tried to figure out exactly what was gossip because every situation is different it's very hard you can only come up with general principles but says rabbi Sachs, it's interesting why does judaism do this because judaism doesn't teach right or wrong in black and white judaism teaches stories and we learn from people's mistakes, but we also learn from people's, not just their mistakes and failures and their successes, but we also learn from how people grow and they develop and they become better people because ultimately we are human. And the great people in the Jewish tradition are not those who are born perfect. That's a complete, those are other religions, but rather those who grow and develop. It's a dynamic approach to morality and ethics. It's not this woke approach, which says, if you, if a person in nineteen in seventeen seventy doesn't hold every single value I hold today, that person has nothing to teach me because I'm one hundred percent right, and therefore, if they aren't ninety nine percent with me, they're one hundred percent wrong. This sort of rejecting, you know, this virtue signaling where everybody's rejected because we don't agree with each other one hundred percent. Rather, we recognize that humanity is precisely that: they're human, and people grow, and people develop, and people change. And that's why the Torah chooses to tell these stories of ethics and morality, not in terms of right and wrong, but rather in stories of growth, of development. And look at how Yehuda changes throughout the story. Look at how Yosef changes throughout the story and how he's become more and more self-aware of his own failings and made room for God in his life. Ultimately, it's interesting. I'm not sure his dreams ever come true. 
Yaakov will never bow down to him. His mother never will bow down to him. But the dreams can be reinterpreted to have come true in a different manner. And in that, we'll talk about next week. So, having repeated it myself again and again, let me say one final time, Shabbat Shalom to everybody. This is Yaakov Beasley from the Tanakh Talks podcast from Alon Shvut. <laughs>